0: This episode of June Talking To Me was recorded under lockdown conditions. Hello, I'm Philip Simon.
1: And I'm Rachel Krieger.
0: We are two Jewish comedians. I'm Reform and I grew up reading Mr. Men and Little Miss.
1: And I'm Orthodox and I grew up reading the same books, but they had to be kept on separate shelves. This is the chat show that recreates the sensation of finding yourself on the miscellaneous table at your cousin Hannah's bat mitzvah.
0: It's rowdier than you were expecting, but at least you're close to the food.
1: Each week, we'll bring you two of our favourite Jews to chat about their lives, their experiences growing up, and how much Jewishness has played a part. On a Friday night, are they Shabbos clothes or anything goes?
0: Welcome to Jew talking to me. So, Rachel, what's the most Jewish thing that's happened to you this week?
1: Well, I'm sure many of our listeners would have heard the recent news that the former chief rabbi, Lord Jonathan Sachs, sadly passed away. And obviously, our thoughts are with his family. And I've been hearing everyone talk about him. And it got me thinking back to my own encounters with him. And the most impressive one was in 1997. Do you remember there used to be a Jewish boarding school called Carmel College?
0: Yes,
1: I do. So my husband, Mark, was a teacher there and we all lived on campus. And just before the Passover slash Easter holidays, we were told that the school had run out of funds and it was going to be closing at the end of term. And this was devastating to everyone, to the staff and the students, because it wasn't just our workplace, it was our home. And when the kids came back off the holidays, they were really shocked. And it happened that Rabbi Sachs had been booked to come and stay that weekend. And he still came. He spoke very powerfully, as you can imagine, at the meals and the synagogue services. And Shabbat at Carmel College was usually very lively and fun. But that one was really sad. Then on Saturday night, he was due to speak to the whole sixth form. I don't remember what the particular theme was, but before he could say a word, One of the students asked him how it could happen that this school which had served the community and existed for 50 years and been a home to so many people could suddenly disappear. And Rabbi Sachs folded up his notes. And he asked the students to share how they felt about the school. And he listened to them. He comforted them. I'd I'd say he grieved with them. It was incredibly moving and emotional. And it showed us that quite apart from his career as a chief rabbi and an author and a speaker and everything else that he's done, he was just a really caring person who wanted to make things better. And then as the term wore on and the school was like winding down, the sixth formers had t-shirts made, which were decorated with all their main school memories. And if I remember correctly, included that evening with Rabbi Sachs.
0: Oh, wow. So, I mean, he'd literally been there, done that and made it onto the t-shirt.
1: I suppose so. (laughs) How about you, Philip? What's the most Jewish thing that's happened to you this week?
0: Well, actually, mine's also to do with Rabbi Sachs. I didn't really know him, but we did have a fairly tenuous family friend connection, you know, like all good Jews. There was one occasion where I met him that really stuck with me and that was a funeral. I was 27 at the time and the funeral was for a childhood friend, Alan Sennett. So a fairly horrific day and obviously lots of people were there to pay their respects. Um, mm-hmm. For any of our listeners that don't know, one of the more traditional customs at a Jewish burial is to help fill in the grave. And I found myself in the queue behind the head of the Reform Movement, Rabbi Tony Bayfield, and Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Now, I'd always just assumed that these two men would be religious rivals. So I was really ready for sparks to fly, but I watched whilst they chatted as colleagues and I don't know, maybe even friends. And it was a real leveling moment for me because I saw that reform and orthodoxy didn't have to be completely at odds. And when it was my turn, the chief rabbi handed me the spade and walked off. But I was really reminded of that story again this week when some friends were sharing their really poignant, moving memories of how he touched their lives. And all I could bring to the table was queued behind him at a funeral, handed me the shovel, seemed nice. (laughs) I genuinely, in my comedic brain had seen the two of them stood there and thought, oh, it's all going to kick off? Was Jonathan Sachs going to complain about the level of religiosity at the service and was Tony going to have to defend the reform movement? You know, And of course not, they, they were there to grieve for someone who was a friend and a colleague. And
1: Yeah, you know. I remember. It's interesting people's perceptions about that because we've been to a few reform funerals and people looked at us I don't know what they expected us to say or do, like as if we would be disrespectful at somebody's funeral. If we felt that we shouldn't have been there, we wouldn't have gone. Do you know what I mean? We just wouldn't be there. At the end of the day, we're all people. And that's a lovely way to remember him, I think, as a person. Now it's time to bring on our guests. And our first is a rabbi at Edgware and Hendon Reform Synagogue. She's known for all her interfaith work and has been published in lots of magazines and journals. She writes for the Jewish press and is a regular contributor to Radio 2's Pause for Thought, BBC Three Counties Radio, and BBC London. It's Rabbi Debbie Young Summers. Hello.
2: Hello, Hello, everybody.
1: Now, we ask this question to all of our guests, but I think you are the first rabbi that we've had to ask it to. What kind of a
2: Jew are you? (laughs) I suppose the obvious part of that answer is reform, but I am a Jew that really relishes confusing people's boxes. I am internally very, very liberal and left-wing and open, and I am, as people observe it externally, quite observant what people put in the box of being a bit orthodox in my observance. So I like to mix it up a bit. And of course, I'm married to a man with orthodox mirchah, so that makes the world even more confusing.
0: That is uh, quite a lot to keep up with, I imagine, in your (laughs) day-to-day life. So I'd like to ask, what's the most Jewish thing that's happened to you recently, Rabbi?
2: During lockdown, I started my new job at Edward and Hendon Reform, and my very first more informal service where we were on Facebook Live and broadcasting, it's quite a chilled, happy, clappy, singing, songing service. And my kids decided to come up and join me, leading of course to zoom bombing but we were doing okay until I tried to hold the kind of one bit of the service that I wanted to be quite serious and, and poignant which was the healing prayer which in the middle of a pandemic quite a nice moment during that moment my son in the background out of shot falls off a stool and shouts at the top of his voice my god that butt hurts about five times. Um, So that was really awesome. And my children usurping me felt like a really Jewish moment.
1: (laughs) Oh, you must be so proud.
0: I think it's really lovely that uh, what people would have heard was my daughter-daughter hurts.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, my daughter in the same service uh, insisted on placing onto my head during the Shemar a flashing pink tiara. So it was just a great morning, really. It now exists forever on Facebook (laughs) because they've stored the blooming (laughs) service.
1: I mean, that's what I think all rabbis should wear if they're women or if they're (laughs) not women. Flashing pink tiara. But it'd be nice if it was one that was accommodating for Shabbat use as well with a special button to turn it on and off. Our next guest is a BBC broadcast journalist and head of programmes at BBC Three Counties Radio. He's also half of the brains behind the radio comedy panel show, Anything But Coldplay.
3: It's Toby Freena. Lovely to see you. And thank you very much for having me on. It's lovely
1: to have you. So Toby, what kind of a Jew are you?
3: I'm the sort of Jew that loves a service that Rabbi Debbie leads um, <laughs> where her kids put uh, flashing tiaras on her head and uh, her son falls over in the background saying, my butt butt hurts, because it's human and relatable and very unlike the kind of services that I grew up in. You know when you have those moments where you're supposed to be very serious and somber, and in fact it was Kol Nidre at Edgware Yeshurun Synagogue, and I must have been 10, maybe 11. It's quite an orthodox synagogue where I grew up, and I walked in with a group of my friends and there was silence. You could have heard a pin drop. And I started uncontrollably laughing and there was absolutely nothing I could do about it. Because you know what happens, you glance at your mate and that's it, you're off. And then three of us, we just started laughing and we were quite rightly removed very swiftly for doing so. But as I reflected on that, I just thought, yeah, absolutely a horribly somber day. Probably the worst thing I could have done as a kid then was laugh, but it kind of summed up the mood of that kind of environment for me and was among the things that contributed to being put off for the rest of my life. And so I became very much a liberal Jew and I'm a very proud liberal Jew and have belonged to liberal synagogues since 1994. Luton, and then oh, Bedfordshire Progressive as it, as it is, and uh, SBJC, South box Jewish Community, and take active roles in those communities. That
0: is great. And I, I don't think you can be blamed for laughing. I think Judaism hasn't helped itself by putting funny words in. Because don't forget the Shema, one of the most common prayers that we all say, does have that bit in the middle for a bum. <laughs> <laughs> and if there's a child in the world that hasn't laughed at that, then maybe they're not really Jewish. No, I think you're absolutely right. So, bearing that in mind that this is a, set, a safe space and we welcome all kinds of misbehavior what is the most jewish thing that's happened to you this week
3: well i finally conceded and agreed to uh buy a christmas tree this year
0: i'm not sure you've understood the question
3: sorry no, I think, yeah, no you're right and i i get why you're saying that but actually for me this is about my jewishness weirdly okay and i'll, I'll try i'll try and explain why you might think the logic's completely deranged but my wife wasn't born Jewish. She converted in the reform movement, actually. But she was brought up in a Church of England, quite religious Church of England household. And one of the, her favourite things was having a Christmas tree. And for years and years, I was a real curmudgeon. And, you know, as the kids were growing up, I got four children, as they were growing up, they, you know, they were like, Dad, I want a Christmas tree. Can we do Hanukkah? We do Passover. We do everything. We want a Christmas tree, please. It's lovely. We love it. And Laura loves it. No, didn't want a Christmas tree. This year, I thought, what am I? Why am I denying my family pleasure? Because of my own personal beliefs. And and I, I couldn't justify why I shouldn't have a Christmas tree. So out of the goodness of my Jewish heart, I decided that my family could have a Christmas tree this year and I think it's going to become a tradition. Is it
1: going to last for eight days?
3: I don't, I don't know it may do it may do but we're going to do Hanukkah as well and then the, the Christmas tree will be out at the same time.
2: So a few years ago we weren't going to Limud one Christmas we'd spent about a decade as a couple being as curmudgeonly as Toby about food and doing anything Christmassy we like avoid everything Christmassy and then Gary bought a, a smoker and was like I just want to slow roast a turkey in the smoker and it's good food. Let's just eat the food and not do the Christmas bits. So we also had a friend, an Orthodox rabbi, Nathan Levy, who was not going to limit that year. And I said to Nathan, do you want to come to us for some good Christmas food? We won't do the Christmas food. We'll just eat the food. The turkey, the the Yorkshire. I love a Yorkshire pudding. Gary's going to make a Hanukkah pudding and set it on fire because like, light and stuff. And Natan, I thought would be a bit off it, but he's American. I was like, yeah, I'd love to do that. There's going to be crackers, aren't there? He really wanted crackers. He wanted to do the whole thing. So instead of going to Lamud, we had Christmas lunch with an Orthodox
0: rabbi. I love it. We grew up every year, we would go to my Auntie Susan's house for Christmas Day. That was our big thing. There was a Christmas tree as well. But we were never allowed to admit we were going there for Christmas Day. My mum's like, it's not, it's not Christmas, we're going to celebrate the 25th of December. It's a day off work, let's eat good food. It's the most Jewish thing you could do. Yeah.
1: My family actually used to do big Boxing Day lunch because everybody was medical. Uh, they are all doctors and dentists and opticians and pharmacists, so they always worked over Christmas to cover their colleagues, but then they had the day off for Boxing Day. So my cousins and my aunts used to put on this big Boxing Day lunch. A friend of mine actually um, sent me a photo yesterday, then one of the big Jewish shops which will remain nameless until I've gone there to buy this myself and they haven't sold out. They've got Hanukkah crackers. They've
2: got I, 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 those I can't week. imagine
1: what's in them. Honestly, <laughs> I imagine maybe Probably it's the like, same
2: rubbish that's in the normal crackers. <laughs>
1: maybe or maybe it's like when you're in primary school and you have to be a Maccabee and you have the bit of um, tissue paper around your head with a big shield on the front with the letters of Neska Dal Hayash. I don't know. I don't know, but I'm quite excited about the idea of Hanukkah crackers. Yeah. Toby, I'm excited <laughs> that you're not calling your tree a, a Hanukkah. Bush. Are you going to put <laughs> no.
3: that little lawyer? I think that you know that that would be a lie. It is a Christmas tree, and that's what it is. And you, there's no disguising it. We're going to do Hanukkah as well. Jesus was the first liberal Jew. That's the way I look at it.
0: There's the tag for this episode. We are currently about halfway through lockdown 2.0, as I've decided to call it. And during these challenging times, we like to check in with our guests and ask, what's the matter, Bubbler? So I'm going to ask Debbie first. What's the matter, Bubbler?
2: Trying to cater for Shabbat in lockdown is driving me nuts. agree, (laughs) agree, agree. We love to cook, but cooking for four, and one of whom actually only eats pasta and sausages, is just not so fun. And we end up eating ridiculous amounts of leftovers all week. And frankly, no one wants leftover chillent. Once Shabbat is finished, chillent doesn't work. So yeah, I'm just really struggling to cook for 3.2 people.
1: I don't want to upset
0: anyone, but I think all chillent, is leftover chilling.
1: <laughs> no. But <laughs> <The> first <festival, laughs> I'm like, Excellent chillin', so take that back. But also, my mum used to think. I don't know if any of you remember which one which of the adverts was it with Linda Bellingham and the gravy. Was she Oxo or Bisto? She
3: was Oxo,
1: I not she? She was the Oxo Mum. They had an advert for after Christmas about how they're having turkey every day in different formats. Christmas Day, and then like day one, turkey sandwiches and day two, turkey curry, and day three, whatever. And then it was like day five. And one of the kids that looks at what's on the table and says, Mum, is this turkey? And she says, Turkish in our house my mum would do that with chillens we would have it in like a different honestly we'd have chillen then we'd have like leftover chillens and then occasionally she'd chuck in some water blend it up and she would say beef and barley soup it wasn't it was it was baby food chillens oh
2: that sounds really special before lockdown one I had been over catering on the and I'm also a person that finds it very hard to throw food away I think we're a disgusting society that throws too much stuff away so i had frozen about six portions of chillin and so the first half of the first lockdown every shabbat lunch i was just getting out frozen chillin until my daughter refused to eat it anymore and then i did it last week and it was all rubbish
1: i do feel you because in this uh, discussion because i love cooking as well and i like making loads of interesting things but now there's only three of us at home one of whom is a teenager who again loves pasta but it feels like just for the three of us week in week out a lot of effort but also because Because there's not much differentiation in the days, because I'm not going out to do a job. I'm not even going out to do my old job, which was in the evenings. He's got school, he comes in and out, but the rest of us, we just sing at home all the time. So it feels like it's Shabbat for ages. And then a few days go by, sort of. Non-shabbat. Does that help you
2: stretch the chillen? And then it's Shabbat again. <laughs> if it still feels like Shabbat, does it make the chillen more palatable? <laughs> so my
1: chillen is very palatable, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't shut up. But yeah, I feel like I'm just cooking
2: chickens. There's no slow cooker small enough to make chillen for three. It just doesn't. I've work. got one. I'll show you.
3: What's the secret of a good chillen?
2: Ah, well, that, get I mean, my husband
1: I, to make it. I make a really good turkey chillen because that is very topical. Is what we're discussing. You might need this information, Toby. You do it with the wings, so the bones. In there as well, the bones give it a good flavor. Oh. Chuck a bone in. I'm
3: oh, sweet. Sure.
0: The bones,
2: Gary puts some uh, marrow bones in and eats the. the gush- oh. stuff.
0: I think I'm with you on that, Toby. But I do want to ask you the same question What's the matter, bubbler?
3: You said be authentic, so I'm going to be authentic because it has been all-consuming for me at the moment. It is the small matter of the global impact of the pandemic on the mental health of children. I keep reading articles about the aftermath of all of this, and it's really worrying. And I speak from personal experience because it's had a significant effect on the mental health of particularly one of my children, who has gone from being a perfectly happy student to uh, basically a school refuser with... OCD, this horrendous fear of germs and uh, obsession with cleanliness practically overnight. And it's been the weirdest, weirdest thing. And when something like that happens completely out of the blue and unexpectedly, as parents you're at a loss for what to do. First of all, you think, was it me? Is there something I've done? But then, you know, the rational bit of you thinks, well, it must be something to do with what's been going on at the moment, you know, and everyone's feeling a bit stressed and it must have just had more of an impact on him than than on others. You, you try and kind of carry on your life with everything else that's been going on, and managing his symptoms and the impact of his symptoms and all of those kind of things while trying to get him help in a pandemic, when you can't actually go and see people, you know, and all of those challenges. And obviously it's not just my family going through all of this. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of other families going through this. And when you actually start tapping into the the help and the support that's available, you find that while the NHS do their best, and they absolutely do, it's not enough. And there isn't enough help. You're just stuck in a queue. And you're just having to wait before you get the right kind of help and support. And it can be really, really frustrating because there's your child suffering and you think, I can't do anything about it. I'm not a professional. You know, you do what you can. And then there are people going through worse. So I think the onus is on all of us to do our bit whatever it is, whatever we can, whether that's to become a mental health first aider, whether that's to donate to a mental health charity, whether it's to volunteer for uh, one of the mental health charities. The only way we are going to kind of get through this with any meaningful support and help is, I think, for volunteers and for the community to kind of get involved and do their bit. I'm in a privileged position to be able to put those messages out there. And I've got a plan to, to try and do that across the local BBC radio network. So that's been my bugbear at the moment. How are we going to solve the aftermath of this mental health in children?
2: And I think that's something that's so real, but also it's it's going to be with us for years we're gonna be looking at this for the long-term future. There are immediate crises that we have to deal with, but this isn't gonna go away. I mean, I see in my own home as well, um, you know, our daughter was really struggling in the first lockdown. Her behavior and her attitude just, she became a completely different person. She just couldn't put up with it anymore. Back at school, she's back to being her completely gorgeous self, but obviously for a lot of people, there are gonna be much longer term problems that we have to hold. And yet we do see it all the time in community.
0: And I think the powerful thing about community uh... And the privilege that some of us have are the pulpits that we can use so Toby you've got the radio Debbie you've got obviously the actual pulpit I guess at, <laughs> we've got the podcast and the social media platform that we can use
2: in January I think there's a mental health shabbat at Jamie run which is a kind of cross communal wide mental health shabbat and actually they asked me this year to be their reform voice so I've kind of written and recorded a sermon for that and every year there's someone different there's an orthodox rabbi that does the same I'm a Masorti, a liberal so there are lots of groups out there trying to get their voices heard and have an impact
0: Debbie for for those people who don't know, what is Jamie?
2: Jamie is the Jewish mental health charity and they work across the community, across denominations, supporting individuals and families who are struggling with any kind of mental health issue.
1: I've spoken in my shawl about Jamie Shabbat so often. I think I mind every <laughs> mental health issue I've ever had. <laughs> What can you speak about this year? I had my postnatal depression, I had my teenage self-harming, they've had it all. It's the cheapest therapy I've ever had.
2: <laughs> they also have great cafes where they sell upcycled furniture and yes and um, projects. Headroom cafe called it's it's
1: Headroom.
3: Brilliant. Forget your severe and enduring mental health problems. When it comes to Jews and mental health, there's always food. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I did previews there before my last Edinburgh show. um, That's a very small venue. It was very good preparation for Edinburgh. (laughs) (laughs) As a Jewish mother, I always want to ask everybody, have you eaten yet? In case anyone's wondering, about half an hour ago, smoked salmon in a challah roll. What about any earlier Jewish food memories? Do you remember any kind of meal where something significant happened? Or is there a particular food that you're very attached to? Debbie?
2: So my my Polish dumpling of a grandmother, she was about four foot tall and round, used to tell me that I couldn't possibly be Jewish as a child because I didn't like smoked salmon or chopped liver. I have come around to it. But she used to cook me burgers as a teenager. I was a a militant vegetarian and she assumed that if she mushed it up and put it in a burger, it wouldn't be meat, and I would eat it. And you can't say no to your Polish grandmother. So I did. Bless her. But I think my favorite Jewish food memory is coming home from an RSY Netsa weekend about, I was aged probably 15. I was probably there with Phil, actually. And um, when you go away on these weekends, you kind of spend your time swearing and being super cool. And I came home and I dropped an F-bomb at the lunch table because I forgot that I was no longer on camp. And my mother placed her cutlery down and looked me straight in the eyes and said, Deborah, I don't ever want to hear that language again. I never swore
0: until I met your father
2: Uh, and I I never forgot that (laughs) my dad taught my mum to swear which I thought was great.
0: I would like to add a disclaimer at this point mum that I did not come home from camps having sworn but just so you know someone who did go to camp and swear became a rabbi so maybe I should have tried a bit harder to be a bit more aggressive in my youth.
1: (laughs) And Toby what about you any particular Jewish food that you are strongly connected to.
3: Well, it's not a Jewish food, but it was growing up in Edgware. Um, all the Jews used to go to B and K Salt Beef Bar, which was on Whitchurch Lane. It's still there, and uh, what I used to love about it, my mum worked there actually, and uh, it, it was a sort of place that, if you were Jewish, and even if you were Orthodox Jewish, and you went in there, you still had the salt beef sandwich because all the Jews go in there, so it must be kosher. And even if it isn't, well, meh, doesn't matter. What you know, they sell lutgers, It's got to be kosher. You can get your know, pickled cucumbers in there to this day, still there and still love a salt beef sandwich from being k Salt Beef Bar. When my mum worked there, when we were really young, when my brother and I were were kids, we used to get free salt beef sandwiches and free luckers. Doesn't happen wow. now though, sadly. But the same people that worked there when my mum worked there, so 33, 34 years ago, are still there today. I don't think they know who I am though. I, I only go in there from time to time these days, so I, I think they've completely forgotten. I look very um, different then. I still have like
1: I'm you Like flinging the door open saying, don't you know who I am? And yeah, that's what
3: sandwich. I normally do. Exactly. Banging my fist on the table. Is it not kosher? Yeah, sorry. I've always
0: thought that was a massive gap in the the Jewish market to have a kosher, non-kosher restaurant where the meat is kosher, but they open on Shabbat and so they don't tick enough boxes to get the stamp. But people who will only eat kosher meat would be happy to go and eat there. It's not the
3: only salt beef bar. So there's one in Temple Fortune run by a guy. Now, I think he's Turkish or he's Middle Eastern origin and he makes the most amazing salt beef and latkes. Are they just like his
1: bubba used to make?
3: (laughs) yeah. That's how it feels
1: when mark my husband was young his family were basically kosher and he went over to a friend's house and they had sausages for dinner and afterwards the mum said to him i knew you were kosher so i bought them from marks and spencer's <laughs> that's where all the jewish women went so brilliant, was... <laughs>
3: brilliant. absolutely well you know it was a jewish company why not but i married him anyway <laughs> very, very <laughs>
0: Now, every Jewish family enjoys a good argument, especially over minor issues like whether it's bagel or Beigel. So we want to know whether you have a favourite feud that you'd like to share with us now, Toby.
3: Well, mine's a contemporary one. This was the ultimate result of what we now know to have been a huge feud. And it was that wonderful moment when Dominic Cummings left Downing Street carrying all of his possessions in a single cardboard box. And that image will stay with me for a very long time. But surely there
2: are other routes he could have taken out of number 10. I think he wanted that picture. I don't know why yet, but he clearly wanted that picture out there.
3: Yeah, you're probably right, Debbie. He's a spin doctor. He must have, must have wanted that shot. You are absolutely right. But he just looked like such a pathetic figure, didn't he?
0: Clearly it was a staged photo op. That's fine. But what was in the box? He doesn't strike me as someone that has personal effects. You know, he didn't have a cactus on his desk that needed watering once a month. He didn't have photos of loved ones because he doesn't have those. So the box was clearly
3: a prop. Do you think so? Maybe he's a vampire and maybe that is where he slept in the day. <laughs> because if you noticed, he came out at night. Just a theory.
2: Or <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe splitting images, right? And he is actually an alien. And oh, he like, his communicator in the box to, to call home. Maybe.
3: Spaceship, perhaps.
0: Who knows? Who knows? So we, we started pretty big on the Bruegge's level. Debbie, let's hear yours.
2: So I'll go on to the micro from the macro. I think my my marriage is basically a, a living because It's the thing that everyone wants to know about. You know, the, the Catholic and the Protestant who married each other. We agree on almost everything except our Judaism, which is you know, it just makes things really fun. Sometimes we get really frustrated at, each other's spaces of worship and things and we do let let rip at each other sometimes it's more subtle i was doing a a class this week for the british library on zoom obviously so i'm at home talking about the development of jewish texts and rabbinic texts and was this stuff really given at sinai and i don't know what i said and gary actually can't remember what i said either but he spent about 10 minutes muttering in the kitchen under his breath and i knew i'd said something that annoyed him but neither of us by the end of my teaching knew what that thing was um, and he just spent 10 minutes processing it on his own and talking to himself and getting annoyed so i felt really stressed because i didn't know what i'd said so yeah i just live in a broigus really
0: well, i'm sorry to hear that it's uh, all right it's quite fun are there times when you're left muttering in the kitchen as well
2: no i just shout at him okay <laughs> i don't keep it in <laughs> we're also extrovert and introvert so we engage with these things very differently i don't know if you can work out which is which <laughs>
1: <laughs> well you're here and he isn't <laughs> <laughs> you didn't ask him <laughs> you don't know who i've asked That's true debbie we met at limud festival where you were speaking and i was performing and then i met toby sometime after that when i came to perform at a fundraising gig i think for your synagogue
0: and debbie you and i grew up in the reform youth movements together and toby we worked on your radio show anything but Coldplay, up in edinburgh
1: well, what we realized, Philip and I, when we were putting the show together is how the four of us all connect. So if you think about the idea of six degrees of can't eat bacon, other than the other three people here, who are the most interesting or important or influential personal Jewish connections that you have? So Toby, I can see you smiling in a laughy right. way.
3: It was only because the the best thing that I could come up with was this weird coincidence that happened to me when I came on to the pilot that you did for this wonderful podcast. And, you know, as with all good productions, you have to practice and rehearse. And so I was involved in the, the pilot and there was another guest, Andrea, and I had no idea who she was. And it turns out that she was none other than Andrea Hubert the first cousin of Sasha Hubert, with whom I am friends. And when one evening Sasha and I went out with a group of mates, uh, that was the evening that I met my wife-to-be. So, the fact that you had the cousin of the person that I was out with when I met my wife to be was one of those wonderful Jewish coincidences.
1: Oh, that's a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing. How about you, Debbie? Who's your most fascinating Jewish connection?
2: So, I've got a couple. The first one is my grandpa, the one who was married to the Polish dumpling lady, my gorgeous grandma Renna and grandpa Alec. So, grandpa Alec was a very prestigious aeronautical engineer. He discovered boundary layers which was why the comet was falling out the sky. And he was an amazing, amazing aeronautical engineer. And he was the person who exonerated the pilot of the Manchester United Munich air crash. And I knew this fact, but I I didn't really know a lot about it. And in must have been about, 2004, 2005, the film Munich was released and I was convinced this film was going to be about the Munich air crash and I was so excited and interested. I had never heard about the Olympic massacre at age 24, 25 and studying to be a rabbi. That was my first introduction to the Munich massacre. Um, it was not about the air crash at all. It was a very sad night out. The- the <laughs> exonerated so that was nice. Always well, nice to be exonerated. The other one is slightly more random. The former ambassador to Israel, who was the first Jewish ambassador to Israel, who I think every Jew feels like they know, the amazingly wonderful Matthew Gould, he and his wife Celia were members at West London when I was a rabbi there. And I taught them both and became very close to them. And they said, you know, when you come to Israel, you must come and see us. So about six months or a year into their stay as ambassadors, I went out with Gary and we took them up on their offer to go and stay at the ambassadorial residence. Um, And as as we're coming through Tel Aviv airport, of course, we're answering the usual security questions. And of course, one of them is, and where are you staying? So I said, well, we're staying at the British ambassador's residence in Herzliya. How do you know the British ambassador? And I looked up at the security guard and said, I'm his rabbi.
3: (laughs) Do you know what you should have done at that point? You should have got out your box of Ferrero Rocher. Well, at the time of recording this, another
0: lockdown in the UK is well underway and Joe Biden has been elected president of the United States. Of course, Trump is challenging that. So realistically, this could very well be the end of days. If we were to find ourselves in a situation which came down to Jews versus zombies, what do you think you could bring to the table? Debbie?
2: Well, I'm the person that stockpiled for Brexit. I was very well prepared with cans, pasta, olive oil. I was very concerned that my five-year-old would run out of pasta within about a week. But that meant that when the corona shopping all went mad, I was fine. I was totally sorted for Brexit and it hadn't happened yet. So we were good for lockdown. So I think With the zombie apocalypse of Honors, that supplying will be very helpful. I'm not sure if I'll ever be able to stop stockpiling. I think that the result of Brexit followed by lockdown has just meant that I don't know how to empty my cupboards anymore. I also am just that person that will buy a bargain because I think it's going to be useful at some point in the future, even if I don't know what it is yet. So I have a house full of really useful things. I just haven't found their purpose yet. And I'm hoping that they're going to see me through the zombie apocalypse.
0: I want to know, Debbie, which is your favourite useless thing that you've bought?
2: Oh, that's such a good question. If Gary
0: said to you, it's got to go, it's all got to go. You can keep one (laughs) thing. What would you keep?
2: Gary just laughs at the fact that he basically is at home to receive all my packages. I do have a really teeny tiny dustpan and brush which is like super useful for certain tasks and i do use
0: it do you mean doll's house teeny tiny or no no no, no.
2: it's like table size it's good for crumbs it's good for when you spill all your beads i do a lot of beading there are uses for it but it's not something that my husband would look at and go yes that's what we need in our life
1: but i think jewish people often i mean not all jewish people but i think jewish people from uh, my background like eastern european holocaust surviving jews do hoard a lot because you always worry about what happens if the nazis come
2: My burger-serving grandma, every meal she would serve would have something left over from yesterday and enough made so there'd be something for tomorrow in case you need to leave in a hurry. Like, it never ended, but I've been, like, well-stocked, but not a food hoarder.
3: (laughs) What about you, Toby? When the zombie apocalypse does come, because I understand that that's next after coronavirus, I am going to just set my children on them because they're (laughs) enough to scare anybody. (laughs) Do they know of this plan? No, but they, they will. And actually, if I offer them 20 quid,
0: They'll do it. You could probably get away with it just by telling them they have to go outside to stand on the doorstep and clap for the NHS. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Shut
0: the door behind them and then see who wins. That's it. Bye.
1: Well, that's nearly all we've got time for. But how will our audience know what you're up to if you never call and you never write? So uh, this is your chance to tell our lovely audience where they can find you. Now, normally we'd allocate 20 seconds for this, but for you, 30. Toby.
3: So I'm at Toby Friedner on Twitter. I am facebook.com slash Toby Friedner. And I also have my Anything But Coldplay Facebook page as well. So you can have a look at that. It's a musical comedy panel show. And uh, we're hoping that the BBC will let us do another series when we're out of this ridiculous nonsense and we can actually have people in a theatre. So we'll uh, hopefully be doing that. But it's been wonderful. Thank you so much. Love you. Goodbye.
1: What a beautiful farewell. And Debbie, what about you?
2: so I am at rabbi underscore debbie on twitter uh, at debbie or on instagram my husband and I have got a ridiculous mr underscore and underscore mrs underscore rabbi account where we do our rabbiing thing I don't mind what you do at Christmas but I really care what you do at Hanukkah so if you want to get involved with Hanukkah stuff and do lots of things at Hanukkah EHRS are offering lots of things we're going around the world in eight nights we're going to hook up with a different community each night so you can find out from our website what we're up to we've got stuff for young kids all the way up to the eldest in your homes and love to celebrate everyone's lives with them.
0: Well, I've absolutely loved this and will now always think of Toby as the Jew who's finally accepted Christmas and Toby <laughs> as the Jew who will forever be known as Rabbi Butt Butt.
2: <laughs> Probably been called worse.
1: As my grandfather used to say, I loved seeing your smiling faces arrive and I'll love seeing your little tuchuses leave because we've sadly come to the end of this week's show. We'd like to thank our guests, Rabbi Debbie young Summers and Toby Frieda Follow them on social media.
0: Follow us on social media at JewTalking without the G.
1: Don't forget to share, subscribe and review the podcast. And join us next time on JewTalking to Me. JewTalking to Me was hosted by me, Rachel Krieger.
0: And me, Philip Simon.
1: It was produced
2: by Russell Balkin.
0: Lockdown has really ruined the truancy market. (laughs)
2: It's actually, it's also ruined my self-confidence as a teacher. My daughter's response to the idea of a second lockdown was, I am not going back to homeschool mummy. You are a key worker and you are sending me into the hub.
0: My response as a parent who did homeschooling was very similar. (laughs) You are not going back to homeschooling.
2: I think stand-up
1: comedians should be considered key workers. We enjoy to the world.
0: Oh please, we're all retraining in cyber.